Hi, and welcome to the second episode in our mini-series on foreign coaches in Norwegian football and their thoughts on Norwegian talent development. I'm very excited to announce our second guest in this mini-series. It's Tom Dent. He is head coach of Styros Blink in the Norwegian Championship, so the second to highest level. Um, at the uh, young age of 29, he has uh, gathered quite the experience having come to Norway in his early 20s, um, which took him from follow through the Budeglimt system, the reigning champions of Norway, and, and been part of that uh, transformation from uh, from relegation to uh, champions of Norway and contending with the likes of Asa Milan in the European qualifiers. Um, very interesting to chat with him. He tells us how he ended up in Norway, um, his experience at Budeglimt, the uh, British education versus the Norwegian education of football and how that's had to form him as a coach. Um, and then, uh, you know, talking a bit about um, how to go by being a coach, the core principles, but also in terms of developing the player, uh, but also the person and how they relate and the transition from academy football to a first team environment. So very interesting to hear his thoughts on the game in Norway um, and uh, a very talented young young coach and it was a pleasure to have the ch time to, to chat with him so uh, make sure uh, make sure you listen it's a lot of interesting things uh, to to uh, to gather so we'll catch up with you uh, after the break this podcast is sponsored by Pimp Society a unique clothing brand in the sense that they provide uh, unique customized designs on whatever clothing item, whether that be a pair of pants, a leather jacket, a handbag, shoes, whatnot. We all want to stand out. Um, and what better way than to have something uh, something personable and customized for uh, your own preferences. Check them out on Instagram at Pimp Society, on Facebook under Pimp Society, or on their website, pimpsociety.no, and make sure you get in your order. Now, to our chat with Tom Dent. We're very pleased to welcome Tom Dent to uh, our second episode in our mini-series of Foreign Coaches in Norway. Um, Tom's been um, in different clubs in Norway, amongst them Folo. He's been in Budeglimt within uh, the academy environment there as an uh, under-19s coach, but also the reserve team coach. Um, and then he's been uh, at Styros Blink. Now he's in his second spell there, having been there previously before, and now as head coach there in the um, Norwegian Championship. So uh, second level. Um, very excited to welcome you, Tom, to the show. Um, my first question is, you are a goalkeeping coach as well. Who was your, uh, who was your goalkeeping hero growing up? Oh, what a question. Um I had two, if I'm being honest. Um, the first one was a Finnish keeper called Anthony Emi. Yeah. Uh, I was a big Southampton fan when I was a kid. Uh, so I was a season ticket holder there around the time they got to the cup final in 2003. Uh, lost to Arsenal 1-0 at the Millennium Stadium in Wales. Um, but I sort of fell in love with with Anthony Emi, because I just thought it was amazing. Just like some of the saves he made was ridiculous. And he obviously had this bleach blonde hair and he wasn't the biggest either. And, I, and I'm and i not the biggest as a keeper as a, when I was a player. So there's a lot of things that sort of struck home with him 
that uh, I really enjoyed. And the second one is, is Gigi Buffon, because I think he's just... I've never seen a keeper almost fall in love with the position and football in general as much as I, I feel with him. It's just like, again, some of the saves he does, but he's just he does the basics so well. Like you just watch him and he's like the perfect template of how you should catch a ball and the perfect template of how to dive. And you see him celebrate saves and, you know, him and Chiellini when they're in the event is together, were just insane. Yeah. So, so they're probably my two biggest ones. Yeah. I mean, we're not even goalkeepers, but I think we all fall in love with Buffona and what he represents. Um, we, when we go into then your path, so to speak, um, you studied, I got your degree in, um, uh, at the University of Brno in London, and then, um, and then you moved to Norway at a pretty young age. Why, why Norway? Um, it was one of those perfect storm moments. Um, when I was studying uh, Brunel, I worked at the Fulham Foundation. Basically, that was my, uh, for whatever better phrase, that's where my beer money came from. So I used to coach uh, whenever I wasn't studying, basically. And after the first year, there was a football school where this Norwegian father and his, and, uh, his kid and his kid's best friend came over for a football school. And their plan was to have like a holiday in, in London, do the five day football school Monday to Friday. And then on the Friday, they were going to meet the Risa brothers because John Arna Risa and Bjorn Helga Risa were both at Fulham then. It was the year, I think it was the year they were in the Europa League final from memory. Mm, what lost to, yeah, around that time. So... I had no idea about Norway. I knew Norway was this country that was a little bit further north, quite cold, and the, I could tell you what the flag looked like. That was about it. So I basically put the session around the two Norwegian kids because I didn't know what they understood. I didn't know how their English was. So I just made it a very game-orientated week where they were the centre of it, and I would try and show them a lot and talk simple and things like that. And the father was really sort of happy and really impressed and satisfied, what a better phrase. So. He said to me, oh, if you're ever in Norway, let me know. You're welcome to come and stay with me. Now, that's like putting a kid in a sweet shop because I had this big dream to go basically down the spine of Europe and look at as much football as I can. Because um, I, I decided very early that coaching was what I wanted to do. Um, and I was, I've, I've always liked to travel. So the following summer then, after a bit of to and froing with the emails, I, I went over uh, in, for two years. Uh, not two years, sorry, two weeks, um, two years later on, two weeks where basically the first week I looked at loads of different clubs. So Voringer, Starbeck, Lillestrøm, uh, Starbeck Women's, who were the best team in, in Scandinavia, I think, at the time. And the last place I went to then was Follow. And Follow had just finished, uh, for those that don't know Norwegian football, Follow were at the time the same level I'm at now. Uh, but they were famed for having a really young local team. Uh, and in 2010, the year before, they'd beaten Rosenborg in the semi-final of the Cup at home. That's right. Uh, but also got relegated from the level I'm at now. So this was like Manchester United losing to... I think of a club. Um, Luton, right. just as an easy one. Uh, or Rangers losing to Air United. Something like that. So it was a massive thing. And then obviously all the players then left and went and played at high level. So we sort of met the coaches in at the, at the Phoenix phase where they come back in again. And um, 
it was one of those things. The first time I went to coaches and coaches actually asked me and the guy I was traveling with, you know, well, tell us about you. You know, why are you in Norway? Same as you've asked me. Why? What do you want to learn? What's your ambitions? What do you do in England? So we spent the second week then pretty much watching Norway Cup uh, in the in the morning. And then we'd, we'd get, I think it was three trams, a train and a bus to get back for training at follow for three o'clock and then watch training. And then we'd sit down with all the coaches for an hour afterwards uh, and just talk football, talk about what we'd seen and talk about, you know, traits and things like that. And it literally always ended at the point where Hans-Erik Eriksson, who was the manager, would get a phone call from his wife saying, when are you coming home? And it'd be like, I'm on my way. And then he'd be there for another 15 minutes. And then like, he would look at the time and go, yeah, I probably should go now. So it sort of all started then. And then in 2012, um, we got an invitation to go back and be part of a football school there. So they just employed uh, a Portuguese coach who's actually just taken over run line today, uh, Hugo Pereira. Um, and he was Portuguese, he'd worked for Manchester United soccer schools and um, he basically come in as like a head of academy and worked with the under-19s. Uh, but they were doing these football schools, so we got invited to go and be like guest coaches on those football schools. So we went there, absolutely loved it, uh, loved the proper time we actually managed to sort of feel useful before we just felt like guests, this time we felt like part of the team. Um, and then as the year went on, things changed with the club. They were looking to have sort of ambitions to expand their academy and establish themselves a bit as a top club in the region. So they extended their youth team from an under 16s down to an under 14s, which in English or Scottish terms doesn't sound that big. But in Norway at that time, it was traditional just to have 16s, 19s, reserve and first team. With anything below that, then you kind of stay in your mother club until you get to 16 which is when you change school normally um and i got offered the job then to come out um to work pretty much as as mr fix it so i had a i got offered the under 14s and then to do like the football schools uh and i probably spent about 10 seconds thinking about it and then just said yes uh, it worked out really well i just finished at brunel so i just graduated i was looking for what to do next and so I moved out in January and then within two weeks, they were like, you were a keeper before, weren't you? I was like, yeah. And I was like, can you do two sessions a week with the keepers for the first team? Yeah. So squeeze that in as well. And then within three months, I was head of goalkeeping as well. Not that I'd asked to be head of goalkeeping, but one day I read on the, on the website that I'd been given the title and it's just stuck there ever since. So um, that's basically how it happened. So it was not planned. It wasn't targeted. It was just perfect storm of events and, and I'm a big believer that in those circumstances, you either take the chance, you take the risk, or you don't take the risk, and then your your pathway does that, and you go over that way or that way. So um, I'm I'm pleased for that choice now, and I wouldn't be here now without without first people seeing the opportunity, but me then taking it afterwards. Brilliant. Brilliant. Tom, I'm I'm a little bit familiar with Norwegian football after living with this man for several years, but a lot of our listeners uh, might not be. So what would you say would maybe surprise a lot of people about Norwegian football? I think most people still view Norwegians as like the 90s. So they run around a lot, quite physical, and they can kick it long and head it, and that's about it. I think what's probably most surprising now is that it has become more technical. It's definitely become more tactical. 
Um, and because of the relative upgrading facilities now, a lot of places have top level artificial surface, uh, really good facilities. Um, things like sports science has really taken off here. Things like uh, psychology is taken off. Um, and they've had an academy, uh, a bit like the Asian P in England, that sort of started five years ago now. Um, it's, in a, it's in the middle of a boom. And that boom is starting to trickle down now into the league. So, you know, particularly at the top level, it's very common now that there are younger players all the time, and particularly in our league as well. Our league was known as a kick and rush league and, and you know, tight defences and long ball and things like that. Whereas now it's quite a lot of younger players, a lot of clubs loan players out now to give them the experience. Um, younger coaches like myself, and I think that's a natural consequence when you have younger players. It's, it's easy to have younger coaches. If you had more senior teams, it's not as easy to do that. Um, so I think Norwegian football is, is on the up. Um, and I think that if, if people were to watch a Norwegian game now, it's not by any means of the same tempo or intensity or, or anything that a, an English Premier League game is or things like that. But I think people would be genuinely surprised at the, the general level of the league. When we get into your football education, then you're from you, you know, you're you represent a new generation of coaches, but you've come up through the British system, which is maybe tends to be a bit more top down maybe hierarchical a bit. And then you've got Norwegians and a bit where it's perhaps a bit more horizontally structured, maybe more a reflection of a more of a social democratic society as well, where that trickles in. How have those forces come into play? to create the coach that is Tom Dent? It's a great question. Um, I think, I think I don't think I would have had the journey I had in England. I think I needed to get out of England um, because I think that, as you say, at that time, uh, the Egypt OP had just begun. So it was still very much a case of who you knew, uh, it was very much a, a case of old professionals getting a chance to go in and they were always prioritised and, you know, you tried to do something different that stood out in your CV, but it, it was difficult to get your foot in the door. Um, whereas I think in Norway, they look at you more for that, that profile of the former player is still, I would say, actually probably stronger here than it is in England. Um, because if you look at clubs in general, there's a very strong bond between the club and the community it represents. So um, if you take Borderlimp as an example, the two main coaches on the first team are from Bergen, but the rest of the coaching staff is from a stone's throw away. Uh, in the academy, 60, 70% of the academy are local coaches. If you look at the team that work in the media or things like that, it's 50-50. Um, but what that gives you then is that it gives an appreciation for um, other qualities, other competence, other ideas that in Norway, they, they, they were very clear that they needed to develop. I think that the time where they didn't qualify for a national tournament was it 2000, the last one. Yeah. So they realized they had to do something different uh, and they've worked really hard to do that. Um, and what I am as a person, one of my values is that I'm very democratic on the whole. So 
I'm not someone that stands at the front and says, this is what we're going to do, that take it or leave it. I'm very much a case of that I like to include, I like to discuss, I like to listen, I like to consult. Um, and I think that suits Norwegian society better because most Norwegians like to have an opinion, but likewise also it's that socialism, that feeling of inclusiveness and feeling that everyone can have a say, but there is someone at the end of the day that has to take the final decision. So um, in Glimt at the time I was with the juniors and to be fair, when I was in follow, um, I was very democratic in the way that I was. Um, here it's a little bit different as a senior manager because you you have to you can be democratic and I'm still am democratic, but there are times where you have to put that democracy to one side and say this is how we're going to do it. Um, but I think that's just a natural part of learning, and I think that wouldn't be any different whether it was in England or Norway. That when you get to a senior environment, you're very much dependent on the culture that's in the team and also the personalities you have within the group so to answer your question in Norway has given me the chance to be democratic and, and use my personality perhaps more than I probably would have done in England um, but I think in England now if I was to go back I would probably do better there now than I would have done 10 years ago when I was there last time because of how things have developed in England. Tom we mentioned earlier you spent time at Budo Glimt <laughs> Um, great, great pronunciation great pronunciation practicing that all day <laughs> he asked me how to he asked me how to pronounce Stuart Osblink and I said just say his current club <laughs> but you spent some time there and Marcus tells me that over the years that it's had you know some some other British inclusion as well so I guess my question is what do you think Norway can learn from the UK approach and vice versa is there anything in the UK can learn from the Norwegian model? I think if we go the other way first, I think the, the biggest thing Norway can learn from England is references. I think that Norwegian references at the moment are still not totally of the top level. They, they know a lot of what the top level do. Uh, they have a they have an organisation here called the Top Football Centre whose single job is to research football. Sounds an amazing job to have. Yeah. Um, but they look at trends and uh, behaviours of what the best players do, what the best countries do, what the best clubs do, and then try and educate through that. Um, but one thing uh, Greg Broughton introduced when he became academy director in Glimt was he took... Glimt was known as one of the best academies in Norway at the time before he took over. It had a very good reputation of producing young players and producing players for... Limped, and then they would go out to Europe after that. What Greg then introduced was a whole new reference then of things like talent identification, recruitment of players, um, the pathway a player takes through the academy into the first team and how that looks and what qualities you're looking for and how that's documented. So I think in, in Norway at the minute from the UK, the biggest thing they did is just they need to, Norway need to improve their breadth of knowledge and their breadth of references and not just what it looks like, but how do you get a player to that point? What, what things do you have to go through? What things do you have to expose them to? How do you find that balance between winning games and developing players? How do you uh, deal with, for example, changing systems, most about 50% of the clubs in Norway are very, what I call traditional. So if you think Ajax, you immediately think 4-3-3. If you think Barcelona, you think 4-3-3. It's a little bit the same in, in Norway. If you think Rosenborg, you think 4-3-3. If you think Borderlimp, you think 4-3-3. Uh, 
think Lillestrøm, you think 4-4-2. Um, so that then normally reflects in the academy, but then you're only producing players then that fit one thing. So if they don't then go in the academy, what happens then when they go out? And you can see for those that saw Italy, Spain last night, that you at some point you had no idea what a team was playing because players all over the place, left back was playing like a winger and the centre back was split like a left back and the midfielders are like, had a, um, Spain had a false nine last night, so they had no striker on the pitch. Um, so I think Norway can improve that. I think from England, that what they can learn, but I don't think they will due to the economics, is I really like in Norway that they don't funnel elite players at youth level until sort of 12, 13. They normally leave them alone at the age of 6 to 12. Uh, and usually the big club in the region takes responsibility for their development, but they do it within their environment. They do it within their environment of who they go to school with or the dad's the coach or whatever. And they kind of leave them there until they go into middle school. And then they go into an academy. So at that point, you know, there'll always be arguments about the, you know, we missed the golden window of learning technical things or game understanding or things like that. But I think from a social perspective, it's massive for a child to be able to develop in their own environment, development with their friends, and that it becomes fun. I think a lot of academies in England at the younger ages, they say it's fun. But, you know, if you've got a Manchester United badge on at under eight, it's going to do something to the, the player. It's going to do something to the parents. The, there's going to be some sort of agent flying around in the background. How you're perceived is different. Uh, so all that pressure that comes on at such a young age means that if you then uh, let go at 11, 11s or 12s, then all of a sudden you're a bit like, well, what do I do now? Whereas if you go in at 12 and you're, you, at, let's say 15, 16 decides that, or the decision's made for you, you've got a bit more of a stable foundation to go from. Um, and you've got the ability then to go into different directions after that, I think easier because you don't take it as much as a, oh my God, that's my football career over type of move to more of a, okay, I gave him my best. I've had a good childhood. I've got good memories. I'm psychologically secure and I can, I can take other interests up. So mm-hmm. I think that's definitely something that England can learn from, but I don't think they'll do it because of the, the competition there is now for clubs to get these talents and then multi-million pounds it can be worth. Um, I just don't see it happening. But yeah. I think there will be more and more issues then with, with child development going forwards because of that. No, it's very interesting. We had uh, a chat with Kevin Nichol, assistant coach at Myeongdong, and he said, the, he said the same thing in terms of there were better long-term benefits to players coming in at 12, 13, and then coming into an elite environment. Mm-hmm. But before that... Um, he thought it was a, a more, more so of a hindrance, but like you say, it's it's the development of not only the player but as the person. So if it doesn't work out, which it doesn't for ninety nine percent, the window is so sm- narrow, um, then at least you've had more of a, a wholesome experience. And um, yeah, like you say, if, if it happens, I don't know. The market dictates. Even in Norway now, you have younger talents being recruited at 14 and agents come into play at 15. So how do you handle that kind of uh, vacuum in between those ages? Um, it's, it's interesting, but um, I agree. I didn't, I didn't do the same until I was 12, 13 and I'm, I'm happy about it. You know, it's one of those where to what extent then is 
an academy or your role when you were working within the Budiglin system or follow? To what extent are you responsible for the development of the person? I I I have uh, you can't see it on the wall behind me, but on my wall up there, I have sort of five words written down, and they're my values. That's what I stand for, and whatever I do in whatever role I do, I'll always have those values. One of them is honesty. Now, I'm a big believer of honesty um, because I believe that you know if you're not honest, then you just lead people down dead ends, and you just all you're doing then is protecting yourself. You're not exposing, or you're not helping the the player or anyone really. But I think that it, it's two ways that because I think the players have to also then be honest with themselves. And, I, and then the reason I believe to be honest is because then you give them the opportunity then to do something about it. So I can give you a very easy example. Recently, we had a we had a player who was was subbed at half time in one of our games recently. He's a player we, we've who's on loan and he wasn't happy, of course, uh, and I wasn't particularly happy with him, which is why I took him off. Um, but I had a, I made a point to have a meeting with him the next day when everyone had calmed down and the emotion of the game had gone. And we sat down and we said, okay, this is why I took you off. And I said, I've watched it back. And do you know what? Actually, you weren't as bad as I thought you were, but this was the main reason I took you off. And I said, we're now going into a key phase. We're now going to have to, you know, we're, we're not in a good space at the minute. Um, so you've got a choice. I said, this is what you need to work on. But more importantly, you've got to earn the respect of the group now. Because the group now have not got a good impression of you after the performance yesterday. And it can go two ways. You can either say, nah, the group's wrong, which then becomes a conflict and then we've got a problem. Or you show them they're wrong by what you do then on the training pitch and win their respect back. Uh, and I said, that's up to you. I can't. I can only give you that piece of advice. I can only give you that piece of honesty. But what you decide to do with it is your decision. Um, the next three training sessions, he was excellent. And not just in terms of how he, like, what he did with the ball, the way he interacted, uh, the tone of voice he used when things were going wrong, the fact he started to show leadership qualities. Um, and then... You know, the players started realising it. So I had a couple of players come to me and say, hey, he's been good this week. So I said, well, you need to make sure you tell him then. I haven't told the players I had a meeting with him. They don't need to know that. But um, if the players then give him the feedback, it's confirmation then that he's done something right. And hopefully then it's a lesson for him that he's learned. Uh, and since then, he's been, he's been excellent, both on the pitch and, and off the pitch. So it's... For me, it's a really important thing for me personally to, to educate the person as well as the player. And it's all about basically finding out how players tick. Um, it's not about like just what they do on the ball, but it's like, you know, what interests them? Are they someone who gets nervous? Are they someone who's quite a confident person? Are they someone who thinks a lot? It's very easy for me as a coach to gravitate to somebody who I feel is similar to me. Now, when I was younger, I'm really no different to what I am now. I was a 30-year-old in an 18-year-old's body because I was mature for my age. I liked to take the lead. I liked to, um, I wasn't loud, but I was, you know, in certain situations where there needed to be a leader, I was the one that would step up. So I always find those players naturally easy for me to, 
to gravitate to. But it's just about learning how people tick, learning what people's motivations are. And then all you do then is you hold them to it. So if players like in, in following Glimpse have said, I want to play for the Arlog, and I say, well, this is what you need to do. If they don't then do that, then I challenge them to say, well, how much do you want to play for the, for the first team? You know, how, because this is what you've got to do. And it, I can't make you do it. It's your choice. I'm here to help. I'm here to guide. I'm here to give you everything I can give you. But when you cross that white line or when that, when that phone call comes one day and says the first team have asked you to go and train with them, you take it or you don't. That's, that's reality. My job is just to prepare you for it. Um, so for me, personal development is massive. And I, it's something that I will use probably just as much time to, you, to do as I will um, the football side. Because I believe that, you know, the, the guys here at, at Blink, they're, they're an excellent group, fantastic group of people, um, really proper team with a big T. I know people say that a lot, but they genuinely are. Um, and that makes my job a lot easier then because I feel comfortable, to be honest with them. Uh, and I feel comfortable to be vulnerable almost. You know, I, I can say to them, I have said to them, um, you know, I, I'm, I got some news about family that was ill back in, in March. And obviously I can't go back to England at the minute because of Corona. So um, I was quite affected. Um, and I said to him, I said, look, I'm, if I blow off my hand all this evening because something really small triggers me, I want you to know it's nothing to do with anything with you. I've just got something in my own life that's not particularly great at the minute. Um, and therefore my head's not, I'll be the best I can be, but I might be a little bit off tonight. Um, now that's not to get sympathy. That's not to do anything like that. But if I'm asking human beings to be human beings, then I need to be human being as well. I need to be genuine with them and authentic with them and show some vulnerability because otherwise I can't ask the same back from them. Um, and I've always been that wherever I've been, no matter if they've been 14 or 34, I've always just been honest both with them and myself to, to create an environment then where we can be honest and people can say what they think and we all then pull in the same direction and, and go towards the same thing. I mean, Tom, Buru Glimt won the, the Norwegian First Division last year and this kind of recent success took Norway by storm and not just Norway, but the rest of European football. They ran AC Milan close in the qualifiers last season. They've got another qualifier coming up tonight. They've all, it's also worth noting that they've got a partnership with one of the leading sports high schools in Norway. But aside from that, what do you think have been the key contributors to their success? Um, I was really lucky because when I joined at the end of 2016, they got relegated. And when they got relegated, they kind of used that as a point to go, right, what direction do we actually want to go in? So I saw it from the beginning and then saw it grow to the point it was last year where they, they not only won the league, but broke hundreds of records and ran AC Milan close. I think part of it is that there's a real, there is a genuine identity within the team of players that identify with the club. So you've got Potik Berg, who is a third generation of his family to play for the club. Uh, his grandfather was a, has been voted in the North of Norway's best athlete of uh, the 1900s, so 1900s and 2000. 
his uncle and his dad uh, both played in, in European clubs, uh, played in Champions League. Um, and now he's now going to captain Borders Lint for the first time in history in the Champions League this evening. Um, but there's other players that have come through the system and have, have gone on to make hundreds of appearances. So I think the first thing is, is that there is a genuine pathway from the academy to the first team and the players in the academy know it. So when people talk about what, you know, how do you develop players? I, I do genuinely believe part of the battle is that the academy players have to see other academy players getting the chance. Um, because if you are in an academy, you, you only see them buy 10 players from here, there, everywhere, or get other players in, then it's always a case of, well, when, how do I get there? How do I get into that environment? Whereas if they see players like, um, obviously, we've got, we've got two on loan now, Runa Harriger and, and Arshaus and Scal, both have played in, in the top league during last year at some point. Uh, you've got Hawken Evian, who was there three years ago, who's now playing in Asian Alkmaar. He came from the academy, and then within a year, he was a star of Norway. You've got Jens Petter Hauger, who was two years ago on loan in a championship club and, and not playing. And then he two years later, he goes to AC Milan and San Siro and absolutely is the best player on the pitch by a mile. Uh, and then gets sold to him. So you've got to see your own get that opportunity. I think that's the first thing. I think the second thing is that the culture at the moment is, is very very development-based, almost to obsession, that the players go to train every day to want to be better, which sounds a very fluffy, nice thing to say, but it is genuine. If you ask any player who trains at Glimt in the first team and ask them what you're working on or what you want to improve, they'll tell you straight away. And they normally know then what other people want to work on as well. Uh, and that's been down to sort of mental training. That's down to the culture they've been able to create and the types of players they've been able to sign. And, and the, 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 yeah, just a bit of everything, really, that means that that group is it always wants to be better. I can give you a very easy example. The day that Glimp won the league, which is the first time in history they've ever done it, the captain Ulrich Saltners was interviewed on, on uh, Eurosport afterwards. And the you know the the, the interviewer was was you know building it all up and saying you know this must be an amazing feeling blessed being alive blah, blah blah, and it was like what do you think? And his answer was well to be honest I'm a little bit disappointed because I felt we were poor in the second half. Now he's just won the game two one. He's just gone captain of the most historic moment in the club's history, and he's talking about how he was disappointed with the performance of the second half, and that sums them up that they never. They're never satisfied with what the result is. They'll always say that development and the performance is king. Mm. Um, and that's been a major factor. You know, everyone, myself included, thought after 2019 when they won, um, when they were second, that they could never, that was it. That was the pinnacle and that the team was going to fall apart and that was it sort of thing. But they actually learned a lot from that year. Like uh, an easy thing was they went top with 10 games to go but they didn't talk about it. They tried to play it down and say, no, 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 we're just here for the ride or whatever. But you could see then the players started to feel consequence. So they started getting a little bit scared of making a mistake, which might lead to a goal, which then means they might lose the game. So in 2020, when they got started, the pressure started building the same. They, they, they attacked it. 
they said, um, you know, if we're good enough, we'll win the league. We are good enough to win the league, but we have to show it. And all those little sort of signals then um, created one of the most historic football teams in, in Norwegian history. Yeah, what a, what a journey that was. Um, and now you have assumed the head coach role at, uh, at Blink, we'll say that just for to shorten it, um, where you came from an academy environment in Budeglimt um, to now being a head coach of a first team. Um, where there are perhaps different priorities, even though you, you know, you, we talked about developing the player and the person in, in your current role, but how have you been able to, 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 to manage that approach where the priorities have, have shifted a bit? It's like everything, um, you have to grow into the role. Uh, I can't say that when I started, I felt particularly comfortable. It was a role that I always wanted. It was a role that I had planned to do, maybe not as, as early as I've been able to get the opportunity to do, but it was always something I wanted to do. Um, and I think that, like everybody, you go there and go, well, I know people have done it differently or done it this way before, but I'm going to do it this way because I'm good enough to do it. But you don't, you, you, there's things you don't factor in. I probably underestimated the effect of games that have meaning. And that's both from the player side, but also my own, that, you know, you can play as many friendlies as you like, and you can, in the, in the second team in that, you can have as many sort of junior games and, you know, but at this level, results are king. And the first four games, we won against Songdal, who are again a promotion favourite, but we lost the other three. And probably two of those three, we felt we were good enough to get something, but didn't. Uh, partly for things we can control, like our own quality, and partly for other things we can't control, like referees, but that's a different discussion. Um, but we got lured into a false sense of security where we felt we were close. And then we had a, probably a bad four games uh, where we conceded loads of goals and we, we sort of lost lost direction a little bit. Um, I was getting a bit under pressure. Again, I'm not used to uh, not used to having the emotion of a game and then 10 minutes later, someone's putting a microphone in front of me and telling me, you know, asking me what do you think? And I'm having to try and think tactical of what I'm going to say without actually saying what I think, mm -hmm. like a politician. Um, and after uh, we lost 5-1 to Allison away, that was a poor performance and a poor game. So we, we tried different things before that, given the players quite a lot of ownership. Um, and we were conceding goals early, which was a bit of a worry early in games. Um, so then I had to change my approach a little bit. I had to become a bit more, let's call it authoritarian, but let's just say a more standout leader. Um where we had a meeting where we basically I laid down the facts and just said, look, this is, we can talk football, but this isn't good enough from a performance perspective. Um, and these are, these are the facts in terms of how many games in recent times they'd won, drawn and lost. No, despite the head coach, players in, players out, whatever. Uh, and it was just a culture of basically uh, accepting their fate a little bit before uh, it come and just forgetting what they're actually good at, uh, both in the friendlies, but also in parts last year. So 
since then we've we've won two of the last three. We've had two clean sheets, um, which we hadn't done at all this season so far. Um, but it's been a huge learning curve for me to to understand that I have to get the the foundations down both culturally but also in terms of the intensity, the work ethic, the the buy-in, everything like that. And once you have that, then, then you can start talking about the details of football. I think for a period of time, I was coaching like I would do in a development environment in terms of making the players understand what we were doing and they were probably more educated and they were probably could recite situations of what they should have done. But they lacked the the other side of the game. Let's call it the men's, the, the senior side that, you know, there's players in this division that are less talented, but they work extremely hard. Everybody knows that in all levels of football. There's players that, that lack the technical ability, but they make up for it in the physical side or they make up for it in their leadership or, you know, there's loads of other sides to it. So it's been a real steep learning curve. It's been a fantastic learning curve. Um, and I'm always really pleased to go through the development side because I think that's a, an easy job for me. I think that's a job that I can fit into really well. Um, but the senior role then, as you say, requires you to have different qualities and different skills. And I think it's those skills that I've had to, to learn and to grow and, you know, make decisions about players in and players out and budgets and, you know, all things that I'm not used to doing, the media, for example. Uh, and no matter what course you go on, nothing prepares you for it. Hmm. Uh, the amount of times I've been misquoted already is, is off the scale or the amount of times that I've said something that I hope would be mentioned and they've cut that bit out and mentioned something that I didn't want mentioned. It's, it's part of the game. We'll do, we can't <laughs> promise anything. Yeah, there we go. So, um, so no, so it's the biggest difference, as I say, is more, I would say it's the goldfish effect. I would say in development, you, you can hide in the shadows and your, your, um, your craft is seen in the players you develop. Uh, not necessarily the type, but just the fact that you can give them the tools to seed whatever that looks like. Mm. At senior level, it's everything you do, everything you say, the, the results, everyone sees that and they then immediately want to jump on it, positive or negative. Right. Yeah. And that's, as I say, that's something that you can't prepare for. So um, I can say that now we've won some games. I'm not sure I would have said the same if we'd lost them, but um it's been a it's been a huge learning curve but it's been a really good one to go through we have a uh, quick fire segment that we like to do a recurring segment uh with uh with people so we'll hit you with uh three quick questions so i want you kick us off kieran the first one what are your non-negotiables and working with either players coaches or just people in general uh honesty uh responsibility and um integrity my three main things i think you have to be honest both to yourself and people as i mentioned earlier i think you have to take responsibility for yourself as soon as you start relying on other people uh, it's difficult um, and i think integrity is it's about it, it's more than just what you it's always more than just the result for me it's always more than you know, I don't want to, I don't want to win by cheating. I don't want to win by unfair means. I don't want to lie to players. I don't want to say things that make my life easier, but their life harder. 
And I think that then reflects, I think a team reflects the, the coach they have. Um, so they're my non-negotiables. Okay. What is the worst advice you hear given in, in your uh, area? Oh, that's a good question. Um, the worst advice is be cynical. Play the uh, forget how you play, play the results. That's the worst advice I hear. Would you care to elaborate just a bit? Because the results are important, and there's there's you know you can. People have a playing style and most people hide behind the playing style by saying that they're going to play attractive attacking football. They're going to look to dominate the game and they're going to look to, uh, yeah, they're going to look to do things in the right way and people prejudge them what the right way is. Um, but at the end of the day, you have to find a way where you can be honest with what you want to do and you have to do it well enough then that you can get results. Uh, and I can give you an example uh, there are not many people in the world that would say that they aspire to play like Atletico Madrid because Atletico Madrid are extremely hardworking defensively, extremely compact, uh, and they have this real siege mentality. Um, but they also play really good football. But I imagine that they started with that foundation, got results, won a league, and then they've developed it further. Whereas other people go the other way. They, they say, oh, it's a project. We're going to do this and that and the other. Um, and then they forget to get the results. So I think you have to, I don't think you have to be cynical in the fact that the result, it means everything. Because if you do it in a way that isn't true to you, then you're, you'll get found out eventually. Um, but I do think you have to find the balance between the two. Um, because at the end of the day, regardless if we like it or not, football is short term. Whether it's a player's career, whether it's a manager's job, you're only ever three or four games from the sack, or you're ever three or four games of being manager of the month. It's it's such a roller coaster of emotions. So results, uh, you you don't have to be cynical. Results, but you have to find a balance. Last question: Where do you see yourself in five years? Where do I see myself in five years? I see myself in football. Uh, I see myself coaching. Uh, I see myself as a dad, because I'm not a dad yet. So I see myself as a dad. Uh, but I have no other... I have ambitions, of course, as anybody does. But I believe this role I have now has meant that I've crossed what I've always called the, the glass ceiling. Because I know that for everyone like me that gets through from being in an academy environment to the first team, there's probably 20, 30, 40, 50, hundreds of coaches that want the same. Mm -hmm. um, so I have to prove I'm good enough. Uh, I have to prove that I'm, yeah, I can work at this level. And when I say I have to prove I'm good enough, that that looks differently for everybody. You know, for, for, for Stuart Osblink, being good enough is is keeping the team in Orbos in the championship and, and playing at this level and, and developing a bit more of a structure around the club. For someone like Bulderglimt, good enough is going to be at the minute being in the Champions League or fighting for titles or, or things like that. So I have to prove that first, both to myself, because uh, I've never done it before. I, uh, I've always had the goal, as I said, but 
it might be in in 18 months time I turn around and say do you know what this wasn't what I thought it was going to be um but I can't see myself doing anything other than football um because I love I love the game I love the people in it I love working with players I love that feeling of a player improving or doing something they couldn't do before or a team um surprising and doing things that they weren't before when, when I was here in 2016 we beat Ole Gunnar Molder in the cup uh and that was a really cool experience but that was I got I didn't enjoy it enough at the time that was one thing I should have done more of because I was thinking the next game I was trying to be professional and instead of realizing what history it was um but I think that uh yeah I can't see myself doing anything for football Brilliant. We appreciate that, Tom. And uh, this is just in time for the for the Champions League game. You get to enjoy Trøndelag uh, and the bask in the sun there. Um, but really, really appreciate you taking the time. Um, a lot of great insight. Um, and then uh, hopefully the good form can continue for uh, for Blink. I'll be doing everything I can. But thank you for the invitation. It's been really, really good. Thank you, Tom. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to our chat with Tom Dent, a very charismatic and well-reflected young man. Um, Hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. That concludes our second um, episode in our three-part series. So um, stay tuned for next week when we conclude our series with with our uh, last guest who will be revealed when that uh, time comes. Uh, Until then, have a good one.